Welcome to the Generations Podcast, where we talk about key issues that divide the different generations and how the church can be a place where we unite. Each week we'll focus on a different issue that we see culturally and discuss how each generation is in a unique place to make a difference. We hope you can make the live class that happens every Sunday morning at Stonebridge Church. Here is Generations. So, let's give a quick overview and then we'll jump on the board before we really get into this. Uh, This is our first week on Generations. So, one of the things really difficult about this topic is it's very hard to talk to somebody from a different generation. It's easy to offend or be offended. And so I want to get our creative juices going in a moment, but just to give you a heads up for today, we're going to talk about what this class is and what it isn't. Um, And that way, if you're here today and you're going, this isn't what I expected, I don't want to be a part of this, that's great. You don't have to come back. Um, But we think it's an important conversation, so we want to talk about what it is and why it is that we're having this conversation. Then we're going to do a case study. Uh, We're going to talk about abortion. We're not going to take a definitive stance on abortion because that's not the topic today. You'll have that chance later on when we actually get into the topics themselves. Um, But I do want us to understand how the conversation of abortion has changed. And we're going to kind of walk through that and talk about how we can listen to somebody with a different point of view and maybe come to agreement or come to change their mind without actually fighting or offending them. Uh, And then finally, we're going to have some final words, just some things to consider as we move forward. But to get started, I wanted to just kind of get our creative juices flowing. So I wanted to ask our very first question, which is this. Um, how do you feel when you talk to an older or a younger generation? So this is very subjective, but if anybody feels brave enough, when you're talking to somebody and there's a miscommunication who's much younger than you or much older than you, how do you feel? So you're talking about negative interaction. I mean, it can be negative or positive. You I mean, misunderstood. Yeah, I mean, that can be positive, right? No. No? <laughs> anybody feel brave? Yeah, go ahead. I usually enjoy talking to older generations. For some reason, not in my own family, but there's a lot of dysfunction in my own family. But others, like out and about other people's families, I love it. I feel like I learn from them. Yeah. So that's awesome. So you feel encouraged almost to a degree, like you're learning something from a different point of view, maybe, or from a broader point of view. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just but trying to repeat. Right. I love to hear like, their advice and how things were when they were younger and just different things like that. Hey. Hey, man. Good. Awesome. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. But there's this disconnect. And I mean, it just, it, I don't know when exactly that you'll get into it, but I can go talk to my uncle who's in his 70s and so in Vietnam all day long. But talking to a younger person even while I was still in the service, couldn't do it. Like, somebody, even somebody who's just, just after me, because I'm like a younger millennial, yeah. you know, had a hard time. Yeah. Even in the same generation. I think there's a fair point, and we'll talk a little bit about that on this first part, um, because I think a lot of times the more similar we are, the bigger the, or excuse me, the closer we are in generations, the bigger those distinctions can separate us. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about how growing older actually creates a broader or deeper worldview um, that allows us a more complex understanding of the world. But anybody else have anything they want to share? Talking to a different generation, typically, how do you feel? So I'm an educator, and I work in an environment where I've got people younger than me and older than me, and I'm trying to get things accomplished by having all of them on board. And so I think kind of echo what was said from a neutral perspective, like if we're just in a room kind of talking about whatever, I, I like that opportunity because I feel like I learned from my kids and their perspectives. And I also learned from my older colleagues who've been doing this for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and 
and then I got a chance to share my thoughts as well and kind of like build and collaborate with them along. See, this is really encouraging to me because when you get online, it's toxic. So take a quick Google and type in older generation and four out of five of them are going to talk about how bad the older generation is. Type in younger generation and it's either going to be the younger generation ruined the world or five reasons why the younger generation really is saving the world from the older generation. And so this is encouraging. I hope that you take this as an encouragement as we start that I think we have more in common and more enjoyment talking generationally than we typically see in the news or you may hear in the media. Second, I want to think about how do you think you are perceived by other generations? So when you talk to somebody older, you talk to somebody younger, are you perceived in a negative light or a positive light? Or does this depend? Yeah. Well, I have a teenager, so I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's nothing I can say to you. I don't get it. I'm, it hurts me to hear that doesn't stop. My son's eight, and he's already like, no, Dad. And I just want to be like, son, you're eight. <laughs> so you already kind of feel like this younger generation, there's a sense of disconnect, right? Anybody else? How do you feel when you're talking to an older generation or a younger generation? Yeah. So it goes in the same thing we were just talking about a little bit, but um, so like I'm a millennial, but like I I denied it for years just because of the stigma that I'm a millennial. Yeah. Like I'm like, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not I'm not a millennial. I'm something else. Yeah. Now it's like yes, I'm a millennial, and and when I talk to younger millennials, I'm like. There's, like I said, there's such disconnect even in that well, we're, we're born in 1983. Okay. It's like, there's a mini- micro-generation yeah. right there. Yeah. I'm included in. We're not one. Okay. <laughs> so, with those things in mind, I want you to think, again, this is positive, but we are going to get into dicey territory throughout the course of this study. Um, things where, in all honesty, we come to more of a disagreement and we have to learn how to speak to each other. So, remember the good times as we struggle with the difficult times. <laughs> Um, To get there, though, first, we don't have a lot of Scripture today, and so I wanted to introduce the topic with Scripture, because every week after this, as we get into the topics, the role of the Bible will be central. But since today we're setting the scene, I want to just set the scene with Scripture. Um, Hebrews 13, 7 commands the older generation to keep watch over the souls of the younger generation. In correlation with that, Proverbs 22, 6 commands the older generation to train up their children in the ways of the Lord. And then 1 John 4, 11 tells the younger generation to test all things. And so this raises a question for me. We have a command to parents and a command to the younger generation to obey. And then we have this command to test. And the Bible is going to tell us there are three ways we get divine truths or God's understanding of God's way. Um, I bet you can guess what these three are without the Bible verses, but they're there to help. Does anybody have a guess for one of them? Or you can read the Bible. Let's do that. Proverbs 1, 8. This will be the most straightforward one, I think, for us. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So where's the first place we're supposed to learn what it means to have a godly worldview? Father and mother. Parents! This is very direct to generational, right? Generation to generation, we're supposed to pass on the core of the gospel and what it means to understand the world through Christianity. 2 Timothy 3.16, anybody have that one? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So where's the second place we're supposed to understand what it means to have a God-centered worldview? Scripture. Scripture. 
All right, and finally, John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So what's the third place? The Holy Spirit. A lot of times we'll use a church language of saying conviction when we talk about this, right? But when we look at Scripture, Scripture highlights more than anything else three things where God kind of delivers His divine truth to us. Number one is through our heart, through the Holy Spirit, and the work God does within the individual. Number two is more objective. It is Scripture itself. And then number three is incredibly important because it's how Scripture is on display from generation to generation. So I had a conversation with a friend last night, and he said, Jonathan, doesn't morality change in Christianity from generation to generation? And I said, no, the morality stays the same, but the methodology of applying that changes. It's a parent's job, it's an older generation's job to help younger generations navigate as we have universal principles that are adapting to new cultural changes. I know it's a little dense, that comment, but morality stays the same. Parents help navigate that into new time periods. Um, so I wanted to set that stage for us because as we get into this class, see if I can get this, yay, all right. We're going to start by defining generations. Uh, that is intentionally uh, both defining this class and defining what generations we're talking about. So we'll start right here and we'll say this, understanding each other. This class is all about understanding. Um, and I'm going to juxtapose or I'm going to set it up accepting and dismissing versus understanding to help us. Um, first off this, if we're dismissing something, it's typically out of pride. So somebody makes a comment and they say, and we'll, we'll stick with it for today just to make it punch. If you are anti-abortion, then you are anti-women's rights. And the first thing we typically want to do is whatever. We just dismiss their point. We don't address their point. This is typically out of pride, not out of a search for truth. And so understanding across from that would be humble. It would allow you to say, am I dismissing women's rights? But... We also want to maintain our conviction. This is where the flip side of accepting comes in. When I'm generally accepting, I tend to think of something as unimportant. So I think a lot of times, one of the things that we see is when something doesn't matter to you, we readily accept it. Because honestly, maybe uh, we're more concerned about the emotions of another person and how they feel rather than arriving at truth. Which brings us to point two. Dismissing or accepting is founded in feelings. If I dismiss it, I'm upset. If I'm readily accepting it, maybe I have a lot of empathy, my heart's in the right place, but I'm not thinking critically. And then different, that understanding is founding in charity. Um, so what this means is it's founded in giving. What I'm trying to do is give selflessly. So if somebody says something like, again, if you're anti-abortion, you're anti-women's rights, maybe my pride flares up in that moment. Maybe my empathy reaches out in that moment. But ultimately what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to respond with charity. I'm going to assume you have the truth in mind. I'm going to assume that you have the right motivations before I get into what could negatively be going on. I'm going to respond kindly and in charity regardless of how you treat me. This is the second one, or the third one, sorry. You're concerned with the self or others. Again, if I'm acting out of pride, I'm more concerned with me and how I feel rather than you. Or I'm so concerned with others that I sacrifice the truth. And this is a big one to me. Uh, Jesus says, remember, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. These three are connected. And if we have a biblical calling, the biblical calling is not to empathy. The biblical calling is to truth. Empathy plays a part in that. So yes, feelings matter. We're going to talk about that. But the divine calling is to truth itself. And again, that's a capital T truth because God is the father of all truth. Then finally, empathy, or I'm sorry, dismissing or accepting usually reflect, reflects a lack of understanding. 
Um, we either don't understand the complexities of an argument or we don't understand why it's important or we don't understand why we're fighting. And so we just dismiss or accept. And likewise, I love this understanding reflects a lack of understanding. The difference here is we want to understand rather than I want to get done with this conversation. And maybe this will hit home. But have you ever gotten a fight with your spouse or a fight with a loved one and about halfway through the fight, instead of the issue mattering, all you want to do is escape from the fight? We've moved from trying to understand to trying to dismiss or readily accept. And our goal in this class is to stay in the understanding side, to actually have a conversation that pushes boundaries but maintains our biblical convictions. So we good? All right, that's point one. Point two, why do we need this class? Here are two quotes to help you out. Uh, The first one right here comes from Christianity Today. Political rifts between young Christians and their congregations are growing. A quarter, that's 25% of recent dropouts, said disagreements over their church's stance on political and social issues contributed to their decision to stop attending, compared to 15% in 2007. Uh, That doesn't make sense to you. Here's what I'll say, and we'll do this again down here. This is a Pew Report. According to the Pew Report, most religious nuns, that is someone with no affiliation to any religion, um, left their churches because of a question, because they questioned a lot of religious teachings, 51%. I had a question, nobody could answer it or would answer it. This is why a class like this exists. 51% of those people who left the church left because they had a question and they were dismissed. In this study, or they felt dismissed. In this study, most nuns said they no longer identified with a religious group because they no longer believed it was true. When asked why they didn't believe, many scholars said their views, or I'm sorry, many said their views about God had evolved and some reported having a crisis of faith. Of faith. The top two reasons of any report about the young people leaving the church is number one, po- politics. I'm sorry, number two, politics, because we have oftentimes conflated our political view with our religious view and they're not the same thing. Um, and so you may have a very strong political view that is very much biblically based, and that's okay. We want that. But to conflate the two, especially with someone we don't know, can drive people away from Christianity, and we end up losing the war for the sake of a battle. And then number two, because people have difficult questions. And the church as a whole, I'm not saying so much, but the church as a whole has got into a continuous kind of flow of making the gospel easy to digest without engaging in difficult conversations. And so we're seeing a generation pop up for the first time where they're saying, what about, what about, what about, and people are going, shut, shut it, shut it. And this is driving people out the door. So generationally speaking, the older Christian is the one who's wrestled with these longer. We need to be equipped to have these conversations. This brings us over to what exactly, yes. Quick question, is it, is it more of I can't talk about that instead of shut it? There is a lot of fear. Um, I think a lot of times what you have, and Josh, you can attest to this some, like in seminary, it's very much about getting your degree and getting out the door. So the vast majority of pastors don't leave super well equipped. They leave with a diploma in their hand so they can rush out because, quote unquote, there's a need. Um, and I think there is a need and that's important. But the vast majority of your ministers skin by with as little preparation as possible to get into the church. And then I mean, think about that. My heart goes out to your lay leaders. I mean, people like this in this room, because you have no training and what you're doing is your absolute best. And then someone asks a question and you're trying to figure that out. And before you can figure it out, this person feels neglected and they leave. So I do think there's a lot of fear. Um, but I also have seen, I used to think this was rare, but I've done too much studying and seen too many horror stories where literally people have been asked to leave the church because they asked questions the pastor couldn't answer. So instead of sitting with that person one-on-one and wrestling through it, they said, hey, you're causing other people to doubt. Get out. How horrible is that? 
Um, so again, that's why this exists. But yeah, just like that, if you have a point at any point, I'm more lecture style today, so please throw your hand up. Um, unlike, I think too, like one of the things that's an important thought process too is just how the role, so what you just said, the role of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And I'm sure we'll talk about this when we talk about faith, but how previous generations look at that being authority and saying, is that really an authority? Yes. Can that really be trusted? Can that really, is that really something that, a, a, a document that's 2,000 years old? Absolutely. Older? Is that something that I really want to base the truth of my life on? Absolutely. I think that's a question the younger generations are asking. And the older generations really did have a very strong view of the authority of Scripture. Yeah. And that's changed over time. And you're right. I don't don't think seminaries have prepared pastors to understand how to navigate that shift. Yeah. And I'll say on that, we've devoted an entire week to that conversation, which is why we're not getting into it today. But the question of authority in Scripture is one of the bigger ones I think we're seeing a generational shift in. Um, and unfortunately, when things are accepted, so if you look back at the early 20th century, there's a lot of work done on the authority of Scripture. Then things kind of cool off because the evangelical church kind of calmed down, the liberal church kind of calmed down into their stance. And when things get accepted like that, they're not pushed as much, they're not pursued as much. So when it riles back up, you have a generation of pastors who have not been prepared for that conversation. The good news is those guys go out and they try to get prepared to prepare the next generation for that conversation. Um, but I want to talk about paradigm shifts. This, to me, is the foundational key to understanding generations. Uh, Josh asked me originally to define generations, um, and I put and he he sent me this slide, and I like this a lot. Builders, baby boomers, Generation X, Gen Y, Gen Z, and you can see average age range and then their birth years. And then this guy, this is Mark McCrindle, does an amazing job parsing this out. But what's interesting with this is really something that I think is amazing, and that is every time we measure a generation, what we're actually measuring by definition is differences. So you can see anything that's the same doesn't make the chart. Does that make sense? Instead, what we measure in history, we call these paradigm shifts. And what this means is, we can say jazz to bring this over. So, where was it? So the radio is doing its job for an entire generation, and then all of a sudden the TV hits, and all of life takes a new step. It takes a new shift. And then as we go, VCR hits, and all of a sudden there's a new way of understanding technology. And you pick any of your topics, but at some invention or some world event, the way we understand and engage with the world radically shifts. And we call these paradigm shifts because it changes the way we understand the world. So every generation, by default, will have things that tweak their understanding of the world for better and worse. Um, Therefore, we're defining paradigm shifts by breaks from the past. This is important because... By default, we're, define, we're defining generations by conflict, right? You don't sit down and think about all the things you have in common with the younger and older generations. You typically get caught up in the things that we have that are different. And we have to have conversations about who's right, who's wrong, why this matters. Um, is the other person being ignorant? What's happening? Second, conversations are shaped by chosen topics. So what that means is, The reason we shift to TV is because somebody was interested in asking the question, how does the TV change the way we view the world? So even the idea of understanding a generation is picked by the researchers, the people who are saying this is a generation, this is how to understand them. Um, So I want to say there's bias in this then. There's an intentional point. Um, It's also done by events. The easiest one to show you this is, uh, I mean, 9-11. 9-11 rocked the way we see the world. And if you were old enough to understand 9-11 then it had left an impact on your worldview. If you're young enough, 
not to really understand it when it happened, and it's more of just a myth from our past or something we've done in the past, um, the events, the worldview that led into 9-11 isn't there, that disconnect. So one of the things we typically see, and I won't get into this a lot today, and you're welcome to challenge me after class on this, is people who are old enough to remember 9-11 as either a young adult or a teenager um, typically see a concern with terrorism, right? Particularly then we begin to tie terrorism with foreign terrorism. People who are younger don't. They tie terrorism with domestic terrorism. And they're fighting hard to pull it away from foreign terrorism. And a large part of that is the way we reacted to 9-11. And so we're not trying to get into the merits of that conversation right now. I just want you to understand that when you talk to somebody younger, that's not an event they lived through. That's not an event that mattered to them. Um, the second... So Generation Z is one of those generations also that would have no memory. Yes. Yeah. So even though they're alive... Yeah. It's, you know, they're three, four, five, six. You know, to them, their world did nothing. It changed in no way, except for maybe someone lost their dad, and that's where, or their parent, or a loved one, and that's where something does change. Um, because that also brings us to this impact on the study, and slow evolution I'll come back to. Uh, generation differences changing from topic to topic. Generational lines will change from topic to topic. So my problem, and I'm talking fast because I want to get to the case study, is this. When I was asked to define and give you dates for generations, I couldn't do it without doing disservice to the topics. So Ben's doing politics in two weeks, and the dates he'll have for generation after generation will be determined by looking at politics. But when we do gender roles next week, those generations will just sum. So we need to understand generations by topics because events correlate to different topics. So against, again, 9-11 probably did very little for gender role. But it did a lot for politics. And so I want you to say, when you see 1925-1945, we really need to understand that with like a parentheses. Like it's really mid-20s to mid-40s. Mid-40s to mid-60s. Because again, that's going to shift. So every week, you'll see generations defined by the events and the worldview shifts that are occurring. Um, we need to understand shifts on a spectrum is what I'm saying there. So every week, again, I want to give our teachers leeway. Um, and this is the big one, understanding generational studies as partial and overgeneralized. So I want us to be aware of this one thing, and that is this. Because we're choosing topics, we're not getting a wholesome understanding of our generation. We're getting, honestly, a very nuanced understanding every week. And we can't let that define a generation. So if someone comes in here and they are against everything you stand against politically... Don't let that define that entire generation for you because there's a lot of things, again, where you agree, where your worldview starts. And you guys are able to say, from here, let's find common ground before we get into the fight on politics, before we get into the fight on you name it. Um, so again, they're partial. The second thing is, like I just mentioned with 9-11, it's, um, what's the word I use? It's overgeneralized, which means, and we'll show you right here. I love this. It's a great example. Jazz was the predominant method. And then who shows up? Can you read that? Elvis. Elvis. We tend to think when we see this chart that Elvis shows up, and what happened to Jazz? It died. It died. Is is thank God? Is 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 Jazz? Is Jazz gone? No. Did people still like Jazz when Elvis was around? Yes. So when we generalize like this, we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater of previous generations. So you have two things. Number one, you have bleeding over. And then number two, and this is a big one we're going to talk about, is you have people today who, are, who live today, and they may know who Kanye West is. They may appreciate Kanye West, but they still like jazz. 
So we're talking about big generic topics rather than the nuanced. Um, with that said, now it gets really fun to me. We're going to get into a case study and we're going to get to, like I said, abortion. Um, so hang with me. It's been very dry so far, um, but we're going to talk about fallacies, which we've already talked on pretty quick what I call the 80-20 rule or general rules to responding in this class. And then finally, can you correct and encourage, especially in the case of abortion for us today, which will be very hands-on and interactive for us. Um, I've already said this, it's too simplistic. It creates false categories. And here's why this is important for us today. C.S. Lewis coined a term called chronological snobbery. Has anybody heard of it? Based off the term chronological, what would you, have to, what would you guess it means? generational t- over time and then based off the term snobbery what would you think it means our generation is better than yours we understand this today under the word progress um, in fact I think you saw this well with Obama's second campaign do you remember what his uh, after hope what was his next word change. change and the assumption behind this is that all change is good. good we've created a false narrative in history so that we can propel ourselves forward as the champions And this is important for us because at the end of the day, there is a responsibility on older generations to prepare younger, and there is a command on younger generations to listen to and engage with older generations, particularly to obey unless obedience is something that we shouldn't be doing in that case. So I'll give you a quick example. How many of you guys heard the earth was flat when Columbus set sail, or at least that's what they taught? So do you know the earliest record we have of somewhat of a a civilization knowing the earth was round? Anybody want to guess? 2000 BC. This, this blows my mind because what happened was a guy in Egypt was standing on a scaffolding and he looks down and notices how the shadow moves across the sand. And he goes, this moving like a shadow moves on a circle. That guy's way smarter than anybody I've ever met in my entire life. So he goes, the earth must be round. And then he pays a guy, so you have professional walkers. So the way that, you know, like we have uh, kilometers today, some of that, they'll tell you how far you've gone or pedometers. They used to pay people who had measured steps and they would count their steps from city to city to get distance. He paid a guy to walk from Cairo to what became Jerusalem and report back to him the amount of steps. The guy measured the size of the earth down to 99.9% correct. 2000 BC. We still don't know how the pyramids were built. But we have a false narrative of ignorant people in our past who we now know better than. So we create this and we propagate it. And I want us to be aware in here that just because it's a newer idea does not mean it should be dismissed. It needs to be understood as developed through history. Um, So those are our fallacies. Now we're going to get into what I call the 80-20 rule. We're going to hit these pretty quick. Um, Number one, listen. Before you speak, don't be formulating a response in your head. I'm very guilty of this. Once I hear your point and you start to expand, I'm like, nope, now I'm formulating my response. Stop that habit. Listen to all of it. Number two, determine the win. And I'm using the word here on purpose because you heard me say this earlier. Don't win the battle, but lose the war. What is the ultimate calling in scripture? To love and proclaim the gospel and the great commission. The ultimate command is to bring people to the Lord, right? Your worldview is determined because of your Christianity. Don't try to bring someone into Christianity by challenging their worldview on politics, their worldview on gender role. Challenge them with Christianity and let that transform the way they view the rest of these things. So your win is always their heart. Don't lose the war for the sake of the single battle. Number three, Listen to their governing, governing concerns. This is where I think our generation today does the worst. 
what is the actual governing concern here? Or are they just stupid or ignorant or evil? Because that's typically our go-to response. Number four, this is my favorite one. It's called the 80-20 rule. When I was in seminary or working on my PhD, I had to do book reviews, right? So new books would come out and I would get asked to write a review on it. And here was the general rule. For every one criticism you had, you had to couch it with four statements of understanding. The idea was this, 80% of your criticism of your book review should be written so well that if the person who wrote the book was sitting there, they would go, that's a great analysis of my book. Once you finish your 80%, guess what? Then you get to give your criticism. People don't listen when you criticize and criticize and criticize, but they don't feel understood. Understanding does not mean agreeing, remember? It means listening and trying to process and see what they're saying. And then finally, pathos, ethos, and logos. I know these are old school terms. You may remember them from like high school. Um, Here's what you need to understand. Pathos means an emotional response. Um, This is when someone pulls on your heartstrings. Ethos is from my personal experiences. So this is anecdotal. And then logos is intellectual. It's reason. If someone is giving you a pathos response, if they're speaking from their heart, they're talking about the time their mom died from cancer, which is horrible, don't give them a response of the intellect. You do this. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is John Calvin. So I'm going to hit this real quick. John Calvin was a famous pastor in Geneva. Um, before, let's see, what was the year? Is it 1743 or 1643? I think it's 1643. Before 1643, he's writing to pit friends who had lost children. And all he does is quote scripture at them. After 1643, his responses are pure ethos. I'm sorry, pure pathos. Everything was, my heart breaks for you. I'm so sorry. Remember that God is good during this, but I know this is hard. Do you know what happened in between that? He lost a kid. You see, when we don't experience the same pathos, we tend to rationalize in our response. You need to connect emotionally and you need to connect with whatever the anecdote is before you respond intellectually to something or you'll lose them. So we're going to see if we can do that. And this is all up to you guys. Number one, listen, this is taken from everyday feminism. So I'm sure everybody here, avid reader. (laughs) All right, so let's see what she has to say. I am pro-choice because I believe women's lives matter. I am pro-choice because I think women themselves are the best people to decide when and if they get pregnant, give birth, and raise children. I am pro-choice because I believe that the right to control your own reproduction is a fundamental right and is protected both under our constitution and basic human rights ideals. And I believe that fundamental rights include the right to prevent pregnancy, the right to get pregnant, the right to carry a pregnancy to term, and the right to terminate a pregnancy. I am pro-choice because I believe that if we outlaw a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy, there is no legal argument against forcing a woman to terminate a pregnancy or disallowing certain people from reproducing. Um, Now, I'll be honest, I pulled this from her intro and it gets pretty uh, emotional after this and kind of aggressive in his attack. But this is a prime example of kind of mixing pathos, ethos, and logos. But you sat through it. You listened to it, right? How many of you guys were formulating responses and getting angry? Great. This is one. I'm kind of getting angry. And that's okay. It's okay to get angry. What you don't want to do is shut down and quit hearing it. Because then how can you respond to something you haven't heard? Step two, determine the win. So in this case, this is all up to you guys. What is the big win? What do you think is the conversation that needs to take place? Anybody have an idea? I know this is a a touchy topic, but that's okay. Yeah. 
I think, I think good common ground with this person would be talking about how do we reduce the number of abortions, right? How do we make that number lower? Because that's something that they're not innately opposed to. Um, and that also gets us closer to my goal of there being no abortions. Yeah. So, so Ben recognizes it's not challenge this, challenge that. It's not fight over this point. It is find common ground. In this case, he would say, the win for me would be how can, can we talk about how to reduce an abortion or the abortion rate? Everybody good with that? Do you think there's another win in your mind? I mean, this is more subjective, right? This is more, A, how's the Spirit speaking to you? And are we controlling that emotional outlash that sometimes we want to have when someone disagrees with us? I'm happy to move forward with Ben's, but again, I want to, dissenting ideas are all part of this class. Shifting yeah. To the rights of the child. Shifting the conversation to the rights of the child. So there, there's a little bit of a burden, right? On saying this is a child, not just a parasite. Because this is the language we hear today. So, okay, so shifting the rights to the child, what do you got? Well, I was just going to say, when she, she hit all three, you know, made those and those folks, where would you, and this is just more of a question, where would you come at in that? If you approach it from Logos, which is the, this is literally biologically a child, you're murdering possibly a woman, so what do you really care about women's rights? Or if you come at it from the, you know, the emotional side, or where would you recommend coming at it from that? I will address that at point five. Because we're going to do that collectively. Yeah. No, this woman is not a Christian, which is also important to the way we talk about these things because shared authority is no longer something we can bank on. Yeah. Is it even worth having the fight, if you will, having the battle? If 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 this woman is, I mean, she's she's eloquent, right? I mean, she's spoke her mind very well. Is it worth even having the fight? Are you going to change your mind? Probably not. Right. So. Is, is the tact or the win just showing her Christ's love in that sense, right? Not tearing her down, not, you know, arguing and reason with her. Yeah. It's just building a relationship with her. Is that the win? So this is important to me because what you've done now is you've brought in a deeper context, right? So the same thing with, is this person a Christian? Because in this, we're doing a general statement. So we're arguing with the statement. It's very different if this lady was standing here. Um, who is both made by God and is a child of God, right? And then we're trying to have a conversation with her. And if she is aggressive and she's defensive and she's shutting you down and dismissing you, I do think there's a valid point where you go, hey, thanks for your time. Um, one of my favorite guys who does this goes to college campuses and has this kind of conversation with students. I think he is uh, sometimes a horrible role model of this, but sometimes he will actually sit down and start having a conversation and then go, hey, it doesn't sound like you're willing to actually listen to me at all. I appreciate the fact that we're talking. And then he just says, you know, I'm going to talk to somebody who will. You, I will say that's a valid concern because of this. You are a limited resource. So as much as your command is to make disciples, we are looking for people who are open to becoming disciples of Christ, not trying to force feed Christianity to someone who's going to spit it out every step of the way. So good. This is very subjective. Yeah. I don't know. Just to share, I just, it's kind of off topic, but maybe on topic. <laughs> um, a friend just shared another hot topic, vaccinations and how there are aborted fetal cell DNA used in them and different things of that line. So there was somebody who is very pro-vaccinations who is now completely on the other side, but she wasn't a Christian before either. And it was through learning about that and through someone taking the time to explain those things that she actually became a Christian. Yeah. So, I mean, there are that side of it as well. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that we should take the time. I What comes to me is there are times where I say, my best effort now is to pray for your readiness as opposed to, again, beating my head against a wall. So, get very subjective, and I think that's where the Holy Spirit speaks, and that's where you need to be listening to what God has to say rather than 
saying the win is this, the win is this, and just sticking your flag in the ground um, because you're going to waste a lot of effort sometime. Well, yeah. I think we're also assuming that like we're not going out and hunting these people down that are that we know don't <laughs> yeah. do this. This is like for circumstances where um, you know you have a chance to talk to someone one on one, or like you know just a couple of people. And yes, it's not. You know, we're not like going out. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say that this is very, so if you look up like Robbie Zacharias, for instance, who I absolutely love, um, when I was doing youth ministry, a lot of my students loved his points, but they hated his aggressive nature. And I had to explain to them, this is because it's an academic debate, not because you're speaking one-on-one when you're applying what he says, we're applying it differently. So we are very much more talking about friendship conversations, not walking down the mall and seeing somebody in a shirt that says I'm pro-choice and being like, you meet me for coffee now. (laughs) Um, so yeah, again, use your heart, use what the Lord is saying to you in that moment, but determine your win. And I think you guys did a great job displaying the variety of what a win should be, even in a statement like this. I mean, I've had this conversation like with my cousins, you know, we, we meet like every so often, you know, or whatever. And it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of like a conversation you have with someone who you probably already know and, and already has like a, you have a similar amount of a trust relationship. Or, or you have a relationship yeah. prior. It's like, yeah. It's where I think being ready to have this conversation kind of comes into play. This yeah. Is like a, this isn't a great Facebook conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Please don't take any of the topics we talk about in this class and start and start hitting Facebook. Um, the internet is already toxic. Bringing something like this in will do nothing but pull all the toxicity toxicity it can into the conversation. All right. Listen. So I left this. I went backwards. Yep. I had the thing upside down. All right. Governing concern. So this is another one. So listen to this again. Read it through. I'm not going to read it out loud. What are, if you can choose one to three concerns this person has, what are they? Women's lives, women's rights. Women's lives or women's rights. It's a very big concern. Anything you want to add to that? Or are we good with that? She's worried about where the, the legal part of that is. Like if I say this is allowed, then how much further is yeah. the government going to take it after that? So, but this, and this is a conversation that both sides use, right? Like, where do we draw that line? So the legality of it and how far that can slide one way or the other. Women's rights, and I heard reproductive rights, which is huge for today's conversation. And then do you have an additional one? Oh, I was going to say government overreach. Yeah. So when we hear these concerns, these are the concerns you want to respond to. Remember, we want to respond within their concerns. So before we do that, though, we have the 80-20 rule. Can someone give me four statements to understand this. So if I had just made this comment to show me you're listening and then give me one, a response to one of those concerns. Anybody feel brave? You, it's right here written. So you can just pull straight from it. Like, of course, women's lives matter. Um, of course, like the government shouldn't be controlling everything that we do. Of course, like people, women have a right to like get pregnant when they want to and like carry the pregnancy. I don't know if that was four or three. You're good. But also like, I didn't do a very good job of this, but the children's rights matter too, you know? So yeah. So here's one thing I would say, this is my wife, Micah. She did a great job counting out, making sure she had it right now. Um, Pay very close attention to your verbiage. I'm only going to do this because I love my wife deeply. So when we say, of course, what is that? What does that uh, communicate? Dismissing. Dismissing. Okay. So instead, you said, I really, I hear you. I agree that women's lives matter. Statement one, I just took her first statement and said, I agree women's lives matter. And that's saying, please don't hear me say they don't matter. I agree that women themselves are usually the best person to decide about pregnancy, when to get pregnant. 
And so you're saying, I agree. Here's the four common ground statements I can agree on or that I hear you. If you can't agree on anything, I hear, I recognize this is a concern. Then you make that switch. I am concerned about, but I don't understand. Because remember, this is about understanding. And then lay it on. You can hit sharp. Just make sure you're kind of doing it with love and you're doing it in a way that vernacularly or vocabulary-wise, they're going to hear it. So you can say, I, I hear that, but I am concerned that you're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Bad choice of words. Um, <laughs> but I do think their, their legal concerns may be misplaced or at least may be one-sided. So you're starting a conversation asking them to explain more and more, and your 20% is a criticism to get them to expound and begin to see their own faults. Um, that's the goal. The goal is not to say definitively, here's where you're wrong, plant my flag. The goal is to say, do you see where you're misguided here? Or where maybe you're, uh, you're missing a piece of the puzzle. This is our last one. You guys have already touched on this a lot. Um, <laughs> did you see pathos in here at all? So again, this is emotion. Did you see emotion kind of reading into this at all? Lots of eyes. I thought this was a very emotional plea, right? Um, did you see anything anecdotal? Anything from ethos? Not, uh, it means a personal story. So I went to the abortion clinic and... I think, I think the ethos is that they're writing on a website about feminism. So it's more implicit than explicit. Yes. And so again, if we were saying this in conversation, you would say there's no ethos here. Now, if you were going to respond online, which again, we've already said, please don't do, then ethos is there. And so you can respond anecdotally. What about logos? Yeah, there's a big apply, at least to reasonable thinking, right? Think through this process with me. So again, when you respond, pathos and logos, very fair game. Today, I encourage you to use more ethos than I like, um, because this is the predominant way we communicate truth today. Think about the news media. When we want to talk about immigration, do we talk about, well, how does Fox do it? Just think about that, the conservative side. What do they do? They give you numbers and stats, right? There are 22 million, da 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 But then you turn to CNN, and what do they do? This is, this is Susie Q. She was left alone at the border. It's anecdotal because anecdotal pulls us more. So you can use anecdotal. It's not unfair. It's one of the three argumentative styles. Um, but be careful how you use it because we don't want to communicate that we are controlled completely by the anecdotal. Um, logos, pathos, and ethos should be blended in a good argument. So when you talk to somebody really smart who's engaging, use all three of these evenly. Uh, here's what this class is going to bring to the conversation, though. It's more than just simply listening and having that five-step response. Um, this is very important to us. This is Roe. We're going to start with Roe versus Wade, and we're going to see the trajectory of what's happened. Anybody familiar with Roe versus Wade? All right, anybody alive during Roe versus Wade? See, that makes me happy because you guys lived it. You saw the shift, right? And so before Roe versus Wade, abortion was illegal. And after Roe versus Wade, it was or at least starting to become legal. Here's what's interesting to me. If you actually don't, don't look at Wikipedia because it's written by modern, t- scholar, or modern people, so they put a modern slant on the reading, go back and look at the court decision itself. State interest in regulating abortion is the term. What is the concern of the court when they rule in a Roe versus Wade? I think that government federal was not controlling what the states could do. Yeah, I mean, go, Ben, do you have something else? And also the idea that abortion was happening yeah. But I mean, and if you see that their, their biggest thing in their ruling was the government should not come in and say, yes, abortion, no abortion, yes, abortion, no abortion. So the concern of the 1970s was very much governmental oversight. By 1990, we had the Clintons running for office. And if you guys remember this, uh, safe, legal and rare. So this is terminology used by the 90s. And Clint, uh, Hillary used this in 2008 as well. So you have 18 years of them championing this and my question there is, what's changed? 
from governmental oversight? What's the new concern? And I think this is closer to what you were hitting as a, as a new concern. It's regulated, so it's safe. It's regulated, so it's safe. So we move from, hey, the government can really kind of overstep their bounds here to this is happening, but we need to have it safe, legal, and rare. And again, that was the conversation to, through 2008. Now, this is taken from NARL, um, who they're pro-choice and they have a huge website. They're kind of like the National Federation of Abortions. Um, and this is on their website today. Opening statement. We believe, or we're here to fight for, the right to choose abortion as essential or is essential to ensuring a woman can decide for herself if and with whom to start or grow a family. We'll never stop fighting to protect and expand this fundamental human right. What is the conversation now? What's their concern? Rights. Rights. And this is really interesting. You pointed this out earlier. On their webpage, this is the verbiage they use. Abortion is reproductive freedom. Now, I know that upsets a lot of you, but the, the bottom line is you need to understand someone who is being raised in this vocabulary today. Because for their mind, abortion will be equated with contraception and abortion will be equated with sexual freedom. To limit someone's right to an abortion is to limit a, a right for them to have sex. Now, that may appall you, but you need to listen to that and understand it if we're going to have a conversation over this. Otherwise, we're just going to be beating our heads against the wall because we reject something that they've already accepted. Now, this class is important because here's what it's showing you. Over the last 50 years, we've seen a shift from governmental control to making sure it's safe to making sure it's understood as a basic human choice. So if I talk to somebody who was alive in the 70s or before that, are we going to be able to agree on choice? Well, I will because I'm not, you know, more modern. I'm going to go, yeah, we're going to agree. It's not, it's not really about choice. This is more about governmental control. But if I talk to someone who is 20 today, governmental control is no longer the conversation. Safety is no longer the conversation. What is the conversation? Choice. choice. Are you violating a woman's rights? So this is important because if I'm older, I have to begin to shift gears to catch up to this conversation without presupposing all of this is agreed upon. And if I'm younger, I have to learn how to come back to this part of the conversation and recognize what's happening. Um, and this is difficult. And I'm going to get to why this is difficult and why this is important. But for the sake of us in this class, what you're going to see with each of our set, uh, six topics is this shift happening. And you have to begin to think generationally, how do I have a conversation with somebody I radically disagree with and still hear what's happening? So let's go into the topics. We're going to hit this real fast because we're almost out of time. Next week, or I'm sorry, two weeks, we have politics. Our order has changed from when I wrote this down on the board. Do you know the order right now? Uh, gender roles is next week. All right, so gender roles, then politics. politics. And what's after that, do you know? Then faith, uh, then morality and authority. Uh, and then technology. And then identity. Okay, so if you hear that, here are six topics. Politics, morality and authority, faith, gender roles, technology, identity, and value. Once again, with the clipboard, it's been coming around. If you didn't get it, make sure your email's on there because you will let them know the topic every week as well, right? Yes. Um, so that way, let's say you walk in, you're like, I really could care less about technology, but I really want to be here for faith. Make sure you plan that Sunday you're not here I'll pass this back to miss that one. Um, a few factors I want you to consider. Almost everybody will touch on these to help us understand these paradigm shifts. We are, I said earlier, we're not smarter today. In fact, actually, the, the newest studies actually say that we are now dumber than our generation before us, which is fascinating. Um, but we have more access to information, and there are some huge positive and negative impacts there. Number one is because I have more access, I'm more able to formulate an opinion. Because I have more access, unfortunately, I am quicker to formulate a really ignorant opinion. 
And so be aware these kind of things change the way we have topics. There's a change in media policies where it used to be an attempt to actually say, here is what happened. And now it is, here's what happened. And here's how you need to understand what happened. So the media has really shifted from news to gatekeeping information. Um, if you want to understand that better, Vox does a wonderful job on it, except for the political slant in it. But they talk about the process of gatekeeping and how that's gone. Uh, trust of leadership. Um, if you think back to your, uh, I would love to say Reagan, but you think back to your Harry Truman and you think back to kind of your earlier president, your Abraham Lincolns, go all the way back. There was a trust of the president. But along the way, we had Watergate. Along the way, we had scandal after scandal. I actually found a website where they listed every president's scandals. Every president had a scandal. But most of them weren't huge. We've had more huge ones. So today, you see Trump tweeting in the middle of the night. And you see all this stuff going on. And there is a trust of leadership that has been breached for younger people. So you need to be aware that as we've shifted, your older people have a general more trust that needs to be kind of demerited. While younger people are going to approach from a sense of skepticism and then trust has to be earned. Um, continual injustice. If you're ever frustrated by social justice warriors online, recognize that you may disagree with their methods, you may disagree with their message, but they are concerned chiefly by seeing, honestly, generational failure to solve certain injustices. Subjectivism. Um, we have moved from an objective view of the world to more of a subjective view of the world. So even though I would never say Plato is a subjectivist, we would look at something and say, what's good for a fish is good for a fish, but it's not good for me. Therefore, what's good for Josh is good for Josh, but that's not true for me. You'll hear it this way. I'm glad Christianity works for you. This is dismissive and subjective. Revisionist history. I already talked about this with chronological snobbery, but be aware that we are currently rewriting all of our histories, and we have been doing so, to help push the narrative we want forward, whether or not you agree with that narrative or not. Um, and then finally, the assumption of progress as an assumption of change is good. We are always one step better than the previous generation. Um, here's your big takeaway. This is massive to me. Our worldview is shaped by the totality of our life. So that is these three things. That is your world experiences. That is your culture. Generally, the older you are, the more complex and nuanced your view of the world is. The more you live through, the more you've read, the more the ideas you're able to see into both the good and the bad. The younger you are, the more caught up you are in the modern worldview. So when you're talking to someone who's younger than you, more often than not, they are completely caught up in the now. They're not able to understand 9-11. They're not able to understand Way vs. Road. They're not able to understand the 50s or the Beatles. The bigger you are, the older you are, the more you're able to see multi-generational points of view. I hate saying this, but the older you are, the bigger the burden is on you because the younger generations aren't ready for it. And unfortunately, we're prideful enough that we don't understand that, which puts even a bigger burden on you. Um, that's your biggest takeaway for the factors. And in closing, as we are out of time, a few things. Um, expectations. Expect a lot out of your leaders in this class. They, they won't be experts on topics, but at, at, what was it? ask them difficult questions. Don't hold back. They're preparing. They're doing a lot of research. They want to get you as prepared as possible. So expect a lot out of your leaders. Yes, um, which we had Wally in here, if you know Wally, and unfortunately he couldn't make it today, but I was excited about that. Second up is the class itself. Expect things out of the class and give feedback, please. If you thought today was incredibly dry and wasn't helpful, let us know. And when Josh is planning this next time, he either won't ask me to do the introduction or he'll say, John, let's rein you in a bit on your dry, scholastic kind of mentality. Um, and then finally, expect things out of each other. Um, expect to be respected and expect to respect people with differing points of view. Um,
But with that said, please be charitable. Because at some point or another, somebody may have a nerve touched and be sensitive. Um, so please expect charity and be charitable. Hopes, my hope for this class is that you'll have the tools you need to begin having more productive conversations with people you disagree with. This is not a weekend certification class where you're going to walk out next week and be like, gender roles, let's bring it world. <laughs> you're going to walk out and go, that was a lot to think about, but I feel better prepared to talk to someone who disagrees with me on gender roles. Uh, and then finally, your challenges. The, the biggest challenge as I sat down with this is this. I don't think the challenge is going to be hearing information and processing it. I think it's going to be trying to figure out how to apply the wisdom from this class in your day-to-day life. Um, because everything, as we've already talked about, is going to be contextual to unique and individual conversations. So no matter how general we get, no matter how much we try to kind of paint a broad picture for you, it will change not just day-to-day, but conversation-to-conversation. You have to learn to be flexible and fluid in every conversation you have. And if we can't do that, the general rules don't help us because the moment we break the mold, we break the conversation. So I hope you realize today that we have some very important big conversations coming. I'm going to put them back on the board as we close, um, just so you can see them and write them down if you're interested. But I also hope that you feel that you will be adequately prepared in this class to begin further study and further application of having difficult conversations. Um, Again, this is not a fix-all. This class really is an attempt for the church to address some of those 51% of people who are leaving because of difficult conversations. And also to address the idea that we feel completely ill-equipped as lay leaders to actually address a lot of these topics in a biblical way outside of here's my opinion. So again, I hope you feel encouraged by this. I hope you feel uh, ready a little bit for the study itself. And I'll tell you the biggest encouragement I found was when we asked the first question, how do you feel when you talk to an older or younger generation? Um, How many of our younger generation said, man, I love it. Because it's already showing a shift from, again, what we see so often in the media, so often um, with these kind of discontent young people who are furious. And they go, you dropped the ball. You have failed America. And I think that's so far from the truth of reality and so far from what you hear when you talk to the everyday American or the everyday Texan or the everyday Stone Bridgian. Um, yeah, that's right. I did it. Um, so please feel encouraged. Um, feel ready to have a dialogue. And hopefully we'll stay within those bounds of our five rules and we'll stay within the bounds of charity with one another. But I'm going to pray us out because this class did end at 1030, right? Boom, nailed the time. Look at that, babe. All right, let me pray for us. Um, Father, I thank you for every man and woman in this class um, as we are all your children. I pray for wisdom for my older brother and sisters uh, that they would see who you are and they would feel both challenged by the, the adaptations of today's culture, but they would feel encouraged in the way the young people, the young Christians are wrestling um, with who you are, what you've called us to do. I pray for my younger brother and sisters um, that they would feel encouraged um, by the wisdom of those who are older than us. And Father, they would feel challenged by the size or the magnitude of what you've called us to do. I ask that you would just continue to bless the efforts of this church as we reach out into this community and have important conversations Um, Not to win politics or not to win this or that, but to bring people into a relationship with you where you are glorified and your truth and your character are known. Remind us daily who we are called to be and what we are called to do so that we can love those around us and bring about a change that is God glorifying and loving to all those we come in contact with. In Jesus name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys so much. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday and a good week. Look for that email. So we'll see you next week.